Our New Testament text is Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up uh, out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We have a, a series of episodes here, and the first is one that uh, has raised eyebrows from the very start. And people ask, as John asked, why do you need to be baptized? Why does Jesus need to be baptized? As I noted, it puzzled John. He said, uh, I should be baptized by you, and here you are coming to me for baptism. What's up with that? And uh, we also have this uh, remarkable endorsement from heaven when Jesus uh, rises from the waters, or uh, we see the heavens torn open, and the Spirit descend on him like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The uh, word that's translated into the English word torn is a good choice. It's uh, 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 schizo, which is where we get the uh, term schism. Uh, when there's a schism in a body, there's a part of the body that's torn away. And uh, so the heavens are torn open and uh, the voice proclaims, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, when other people uh, experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit later on in Acts, uh, flames or tongues of fire come to rest on each of them. And that indicates that there is something that needs to be burned away, a purification is, being, uh, uh, is taking place. But we don't have that in this instance. Instead, we have uh, a more like a, a good housekeeping seal of approval. This is somebody who is approved by God and consequently should be heard. Now, what do we make of this? Uh, how are we to understand it? I think uh, a clue is found in that passage that I had uh, Jonathan read to you from Numbers, and there's a, a passage in the New Testament that uh, takes that story and, and uh, helps us understand some things about what is occurring in the story that we might miss. So, the passage I'm referring to is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Let me read it for you and then reflect on it uh, with you for a little bit. So here we see the Apostle Paul say, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, 
with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, when you heard that story read uh, from Numbers, did any of that come to mind? No. <laughs> uh, the apostle helps us to see that there are things going on in this story that we see developed and uh, sort of illuminated for us in the New Testament. There's a remarkable thing that uh, is attributed to Augustine, and essentially it's this. Uh, the New Testament, or let me put it this way, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It's not as though Paul is layering over or reinterpreting what occurred. He's helping us to see that there was something that was being alluded to all along that we couldn't see without all the information that we needed to have in order to see it. Now we can see it. There's something occurring here. Now, we're told that the Israelites were baptized into Moses. And they were baptized into Moses because they were under the cloud, which is what? Full of water, made up of water. Even people in antiquity understood this. <laughs> and with, they uh, passed through the Red Sea when they were being delivered. Uh, as the Egyptians were pursuing them. And these two things uh, occurred because they were following God and following Moses. They were baptized into Moses in, a, in, a, in an interesting way uh, that we don't necessarily associate with baptism. We don't think of clouds and baptism. Now, we might think of large bodies of water in baptism, but remember, uh, when they passed through the Red Sea, only the bottom of their feet got wet. Interesting things occurring. And now we're told, too, that uh, they were being followed by a rock, and this rock was Christ. If you don't believe me, go back and take a look at that passage. Let me read it for you again. This is verse 4 in chapter 10. For they drank from the spiritual rock. We understand that part because we see that the rock is struck and the water flows out and they drink. But we're told that followed them odd. And the rock was Christ. Something here is being alluded to that only becomes clear much later on. There's something that follows, in other words. There's a kind of beginning to the story, and then there's an end to the story. Now, we're at a certain point in the story where we can see that what had followed now leads and goes ahead, and I'll get to that in a minute. But when we think about this particular episode, what we have is deliverance and judgment. When we think about the deliverance of Israel from the land of bondage, the pursuit of the Egyptians, all of that, two things are going on with the water. One is the leading, which is the cloud. Remember, they were led by this, this cloud. But also the episode at the sea, well, some people didn't make it. The Egyptians. Remember, the waters consumed them. They are... Uh, delivered through judgment, in other words. It's because God's hand fell upon the Egyptians that the Israelites enjoyed God's deliverance. And that's always the way it is. Even your baptism works that way. It's because God's judgment fell on someone else that you have been delivered. And the baptism that we enjoy as Christians, being baptized into Christ, is due to the fact that Christ has gone before us and done what has been necessary to save us, fulfilling the law, 
dying for our sins. And now we're baptized into him. You and I, we uh, regard Moses as a brother in Christ, but we don't think of him as sort of the end of the story or the only authority that we have to appeal to. We are Christians. We think about Christ as the one who goes before us and to whom we are accountable and uh, to whom we owe our salvation. Now, when we think about John's baptism, returning to the, to the baptism itself, there's something to, to note, and I alluded to this last week, it occurs outside of town, in the Jordan. And it's not just because Jordan is the largest body of water nearby, you know, that they could get to in order to, to conduct baptisms. There's something significant about the Jordan. Recall that when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they're wandering in the wilderness because of unbelief, Recall sort of the other part of the story that uh, explains the reason why they can't enter into the promised land. They send some spies ahead. Recall Joshua and Caleb. They go in, but they're not the, they're not the only spies. There are other spies. We just remember Joshua and Caleb because they bring back a good report. And the good report is, hey, that place is great. God will give us this land. We need to be strong and believe what the Lord has promised and go and take it. But the other spies, there are 10 others, they say, no, you don't want to go there. Man, there are some tall dudes in that place and uh, some impressive uh, armory and uh, some cities <laughs> that we would have no hope of being able to, to, to conquer. So this is just awful. The, the Lord has brought us to this place that, and, and now we're confronted with this insurmountable task of occupying this land that's already full of people that are bigger, stronger, smarter, better equipped than we are. And so they say, we're not going. And the Lord says, okay, well, you're gonna basically play ring around the rosy for 40 years. You're just gonna go out into the wilderness and this entire generation has gotta die. And when they've passed away, a more worthy generation will take their, their place and they will enter the promised land. By the way, very often in the history of the world, uh, progress is only achieved when somebody dies. Anyone who uh, has experienced, you know, maybe some frustration that we can't get certain things done because so-and-so is in the way knows, I, can't, I guess, what I'm getting at. But when it comes to even the history of science, um, sometimes scientists are not as objective uh, in their assessment of things as we'd like them to be and they have a hard time, just like the rest of us, admitting when they're wrong. So they'll hold on to things that have been demonstrably uh, you know, proven wrong uh, just because they were their idea. I had an experience like this when B.F. Skinner was leaving Harvard. I had a friend who was a friend of his, and nobody was paying attention to B.F. Skinner anymore. B.F. Skinner was the behaviorist. He wrote wonderful books like Beyond Freedom and Dignity. But anyway, he was, a, he was an atheist. And he took his daughter and put her into a, a, a plexiglass box when she was an infant to kind of experiment on her. What a wonderful man. But anyway, his, his idea was uh, that, you know, it's basically human nature is a kind of blank slate in that we can, you know, make people, you know, however we'd like them to, to, to be. And uh, we can do this through positive and negative reinforcement and so on and so forth. But anyway, by the time he had... Uh, gotten to the point where he was ready to retire, no one thought his ideas were right anymore except him. 
And my friend, who was a pastor, uh, had an opportunity to witness to him, present the gospel to him. And uh, B.F. Skinner said, and I'm paraphrasing because I wasn't there and I'm only repeating what I was told, essentially said, I really like what you told me about. I think this particu in particular the agape love of God is very appealing. But if I were to believe in Christ, it would effectively mean that everything I've stood for is wrong. And that was it. That was the only reason. Pride. So, a generation had to pass away for a new generation to take its place. And then, when they get to the Jordan, what happens? We see another episode with the parting of waters and the Israelites enter into the promised land. And in effect, what John is telling them is, do over. We need to do this over again. We need to get this right. We need to go back to the waters, pass through them, and enter into the promised land and live righteously. So what is being actually commended to the Israelites is repent, repent, and rest from your wandering in the wilderness. You have been spiritually lost. Rebellion, in rebellion, uh, and consequently, you need to be uh, forgiven for your sins and enter into the promised land once again. And then after this, we see that the Lord himself takes up the call, and he repeats the call to repent, but he adds something more. Repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, the word repentance, when we think of the word repentance, I think many of us have uh, a kind of uh, image that comes, comes to us that consists of people being you know, deeply sorry for the things that they've done, and that's true. Uh, and I, I think, too, it also means that you stop doing what you've done and you start doing what you should do. That's also true. But the word itself is a fascinating word. Greek word, compound word, metanoia. Metanoia. It means, quite literally, think again. Think again. In other words, you've not been thinking very clearly. <laughs> you need to think again. You've not been thinking. You've been behaving foolishly, stupidly. This is not a wise course of action you've been pursuing. You need to wise up. You need to think again. Remember the story of the, uh, of, uh, the prodigal son? Just, to, you know how it ends. There he is in the pigsty. There he is in the pigsty, and it occurs to him, this is really dumb. My father's slaves are treated better than me. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and say I'm sorry, and hopefully he'll take me back. He came to himself, we're told in the story. Isn't that a remarkable statement? He came to himself. He learned to think again. He realized just how stupid he'd been, and he changed his ways. And we're told, too, here that we are to believe in the gospel. There's another interesting way of putting things. The little word N in Greek, two letters just like in in English, epsilon nu in Greek, uh, means in in the sense that we mean by in. But that's distinct from that. 
Like, you can believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that's a really important thing to believe. But you can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and not see how it connects to you. When you believe in, you're getting into it in such a way that you see the implications for your life. Believing in the gospel means that the gospel has a sense of uh, application just kind of baked right in for you and for me. When we believe in the gospel, we behave like we believe in the gospel. Do you get, you get what I'm getting at? It's not just intellectual assent. That's, by the way, one of the things that the Apostle James criticizes his readers you know, concerning. He says, yeah, you guys say you believe in God, or you should say maybe believe that God exists, but even demons do that. I mean, you know, really, you want to give yourself a pat on the back for that? You, know, you need to behave as though that's the case. That's what it really means to believe in the gospel. Now, following this, something that is striking occurs. We're told the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This is the second time that the word immediately is used in this passage. I noted last week that immediately is a word you're going to hear a lot in Mark's gospel. It's his favorite word. Um, so there's a kind of a action-oriented character to Mark's gospel. It's kind of like kind of a, an action hero story, you could say, because it's all about the action, what follows. So the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Now, why? Again, the thing to keep in mind is when you and I think about the wilderness, we probably think about that Airbnb with that beautiful view and the nice toasty fireplace and all of the things that we're going to take with us to enjoy our time in the wilderness, right? Let me tell you something. In, in antiquity, that's not what they thought. You know, the reason why we think the way we do is because we are spoiled. We live in a society where there's just so much superabundance, uh, you know, and so many technological marvels and things to keep us comfortable and warm us and so forth that we, we, we don't have an ability to even apprehend what the wilderness meant to them. Another reason is because of romantic poets like Wordsworth, you know, who were just talking about how wonderful it is, or Thoreau, to be out in the wilderness, you know, and you know, enjoy, you know, being closer to God. And that's really, I think, what a lot of people think of when they think about going out into the wilderness. I'm going to get close to God. I'm going to go out in the wilderness and get close to God. Well, in antiquity, what they thought of, I'm going to go out in the wilderness and be attacked by wild animals. I'm going to go out in the wilderness and be exposed uh, in such a way that if there are any bandits out there, I'm dead. I actually experienced this in a, in a small way when I took a mission team to Arizona and we went to uh, the Navajo Nation. And I remember we were working with uh, one of the elders of the Navajo Nation, and uh, he told us a few things when we arrived. It was, a, it was kind of an orientation. He said, one of those things is this, don't let your girls out of your sight. You wouldn't want one of our boys to take her on a horse up to the mesa. And we immediately had our, he had our attention. He said, yeah, we would not want that. <laughs> that would not be good. And he was serious about it. And we had a number of, of episodes during our time there that helped us to just realize how far away we were from civilization, the nearest hospital, the nearest police station. We could have been killed and left for dead on one of those mesas and people wouldn't have found us for weeks. It's that kind of wilderness that we're talking about out there. And this, by the way, is the kind of wilderness 
that Jesus entered when he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. It's a dangerous and fruitless place. Remember that uh, statement by the Israelites when they're complaining to Moses? There's nothing here. No pomegranates, no figs. It's not even any water. We're going to die. Whose bright idea was this to bring us out here in the desert? We could have died a long way back. You know, we didn't need to go to all this trouble to arrive at this particular spot to die. Why don't we turn around and go home? Now, Jesus is in the wilderness and he's tempted, we're told. Now, when we think about the role that Jesus plays in our faith, he goes before us. He dies for us. He's raised for us. And he's glorified, and there's a for us in that as well. But he also goes into temptation, leading the way. I'll go first. I'll go first. And he passes through that period of temptation and comes out on the other side, still being well-pleasing to his father. And we're told that this is uh, an example of why, or a reason why, uh, we can be confident that he can sympathize with us when we're tempted. We're told that in Hebrews chapter 4. There's nothing that we're going to face in our lives that he didn't face. And he passed through the temptation before us and yet remained pleasing to God. And he was there for 40 days. Now, 40 is one of those numbers in the Bible that is intended to like, get your attention. 40? Oh, what's that remind me of? Ooh, 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days in the wilderness. There's a correspondence here, and it's not a coincidence. And then we're told, actually, in Luke's gospel, that after the temptation, or when the temptation comes to, the end, to, to an end, when, the, when Satan uh, departs, he departs because he wants to return at a more opportune time. More opportune time. This isn't the only temptation, the only trial that the Lord will pass through. Things can get worse, and they do for him. Nevertheless, we come to this last episode uh, in uh, verse 14. Uh, and let me read it for you again so that it, I, it, you know, you'll be reminded of what occurs. Now, after John was arrested... That's all we get in Mark's gospel. Mark has a, a gift of sort of brevity. There you go. John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There's a transition here. The arrest of John is, of course, followed later by his martyrdom. But it's really the end of an, of an era. John was the greatest when it comes to the prophets and when it comes to the law. But that time has come to an end. The eon that we associate with that, with that uh, time of period that we refer to as the Old Testament is coming to a close. And something new uh, has uh, entered into the world. Uh, so there's the beginning of something new. And uh, this transition brings to mind uh, three words that are important to know if you're going to interpret Scripture. Now, one of the great things about 
the Greeks is they, they, were, they had a, a word for like everything. Like we'll, we'll have a one word and we'll cover lots of things, but they'll have three words for something that we have one word for. An example would be love. Now they have even more than three words for love. You know, you've got agape, which means unconditional love. You've got philos, which means brotherly love. You've got storge, which is the love for your parents or your brother or your sister. Wouldn't it be great if you had that word to use at family events where you'd say, you know, it just gets you away from all that awkwardness, you know, because, you, you know, we use the same word for, you know, our mate that we use for our brother or sister. And then, by the way, that brings up the last word, eros. We have four words in Greek. And when it comes to time, we have a similar, similar phenomenon. Uh, aeon would be like an indefinite period of time, but it's something that we can know is beginning and ending. The signs of the times indicate that there are transitions when it comes to eras. Um, when we talk about history, it's easy for us to do this, although it's difficult for us to pinpoint the point at which one thing ends and something else begins. Like we could talk about the modern world. We're in that epoch or that era, that aeon. That's the Greek word, aeon. We're in that period of time. You know, if somebody would say, you know, no, we're in the medieval world. You'd say, you're crazy. We all know that this is the modern world. So you get my point. Another great word, and it's a word you've used probably, is chronos. Chronos. So where we get chronological. And chronos is just the regimented sort of passing of time. Uh, you know, it's just one day after another. Um, Teddy Percompass came up to me today and told me that he was going to be eight years old this year. And I said to him, you're even one day older than you were yesterday. And he said, no, I'm not. And I said, yes, you are. Because <laughs> it's just, you are one day older every day. That's what we're getting at when we're getting at chronology, you know, when we think about our watches or what have you. Just the relentless, boring, kind of one day after another. But we know that's not all there is to it. Have you ever thought about the subject uh, of timing? Some people have good timing. What's that about? You know, when somebody says, I just, you know, think that the time is right for us to buy a house. What's that about? Well, we use the same word, time, but we mean something different. Wouldn't you know the Greeks have a different word? Kairos. Kairos is the word. And what, whenever the word kairos is used in Scripture, you know you're talking about it's the right moment. We, we see this uh, in, a, in a fascinating story in John's Gospel. In chapter 7, Jesus has already been engaged in some, you know, ministry. He's healed people. He's taught. But some of the people who are least sort of inclined to believe in him are, guess who? His own brothers. Now, if you've been in a family with siblings, you understand why. Yeah, right. I remember that time, you know, that kind of thing. And so they're taunting him. They say to him, hey, why are you in hiding? Why don't you get out there and let people know who you are? You know, if you're a public figure, you don't spend all of your time in you know, the back of the room. You get out in front of people. And then Jesus says to them, with you guys, any day is good as any other. But my time has not yet come. And then he tells them, and the reason 
that I'm talking to you this way is they don't hate you like they hate me. They're out to get me. Now, we're going to get into something later in Mark's gospel that is referred to as the messianic secret. So I don't want to give away too much yet. But just think about it this way. Jesus said, sometimes the time is not right. And other times it is. And he wasn't saying that because he was afraid. He needed things to line up. And so sometimes you wait. And that's what we have in this particular episode. The fullness of time, that's a phrase that comes up uh, at different points in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, we're told about, we're told in the fullness of time, the gospel entered into the history of the world. And the word, guess what, is kairos. Kairos there. And what uh, we have then is a proclamation of the kingdom of God. We're told the kingdom of God is at hand. And what, in effect, we could see here is that the shepherd king is extending his hand to those who believe the gospel and enter into a promised land, the real promised land the one that the other promised land was alluding to all along anyway. There's a remarkable passage in 2 Corinthians, it's chapter 1, verse 20, in which the Apostle Paul says, all the promises, all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. Getting back to my earlier point, it's all about Christ. It always has been, even when people didn't know about him. Even when people thought the whole story was really about something else. It was all about him. And now he's extending his hand and leading us into a promised land that will be a land where we can find rest. Recall the Lord said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, you're going to enter into a kind of land where you will enjoy rest and you'll be fruitful. Remember in John's Gospel at the very end when the Lord is talking about the, the vine and the branches, he tells his disciples to abide in him, to rest in him, to take up residence in him. And if they do that, they'll be what? Fruitful, fruitful leaving behind the wilderness of sin and entering into the joys of the Master, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are baptized into Christ. And when we're baptized into Christ, we are in the promised land. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us the grace to believe it and to practice in Jesus' name, amen.